quick thank you to the Pueblo Wise Broad Air Museum, John Hill, and everybody who brought us out. It, it really was a blast. If you guys are in the greater Colorado area, it's absolutely worth a trip. Please, you can go check it, check them out. Um, the, I'll put a link to the museum in the show notes if you ever want to visit. This is it. This is the B-29, the plane you've been waiting for. And it was worth waiting for. It's the biggest, fastest, mightiest heavy bomber in the world. It can travel farther and higher than anything else on wings. It has a pressurized cabin, permitting high-altitude flight without oxygen masks. It has five remotely controlled, electrically driven turrets, each carrying twin 50s with a 20-millimeter cannon added to the turret in the tail. Yes, the B-29 is everything you've been promised. And the pilot who flies one has an enviable job. Important, glamorous, and tough. Welcome to Talk With History. I'm your host, Scott, here with my wife and historian, Jen. Hello. On this podcast, we give you insights into our history-inspired world travels, YouTube channel journey, and examine history through deeper conversations with the curious, the explorers, and the history lovers out there. Now, Jen, (laughs) last episode, I did not tell a joke. Thank God. This being our road trip (laughs) series, I have to to keep telling the cheesy jokes. The dad jokes? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one for this particular episode theme. (laughs) What sound does a rubber airplane make? (laughs) What sound does a rubber airplane make? Um, I don't know. Boeing. That's good. So if you are listening and that made you laugh or you made your eyes roll or you have a better joke, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell that joke. And if it makes me laugh, which it probably will because I'm easy to entertain, (laughs) I'll tell that one on the podcast. So help us out. Leave us a review. And let's keep this thing going. The B-29 bomber was a revolutionary, long-range, heavy bomber that played a pivotal role in World War II. Introduced by the United States Army Air Forces in 1944, B-29 was a technological marvel of its time, boasting advanced features such as pressurized cabins, remote-controlled gun turrets, and a powerful four-engine setup. The most notable contributions of this aircraft came through its deployment and use in the Pacific theater, eventually culminating in the first use of the atomic bomb. The legacy of this aircraft endures as a symbol of the United States' determination and ingenuity during one of the most transformative periods in world history, and Jen got the opportunity to get an intimate look inside of one of these legendary aircraft. So Jen, 
let's talk about the B-29 Super Fortress. Yes, what an amazing aircraft. It's just, when you think about this aircraft, we just did our talk about um, Oppenheimer and how much they spent on the Manhattan Project. Yeah, we did a live stream on our YouTube channel. And remember how much that was? Yeah, what, two or three billion? Yeah, it was like two billion. It took three billion dollars to to design the B-29 bomber. That's crazy. It is the most expensive of the war that they made anything, even more than the bomb. And the reason why is because they needed an aircraft that could fly the Pacific. Right. That's what, because they couldn't carry something so heavy off an aircraft carrier. Well, and and also, if I remember right, bombers at the time, they had some, but they had to either fly them off an aircraft carrier or it's like kind of island hop to get over there. And it just wasn't viable for long range. It's not, it wasn't, it wasn't viable for long range. So you couldn't carry something very heavy. Plus it made you very vulnerable to the attack pilots. And so um, the fighters. And so what was great about the super fortress is it could fly at 30,000 feet and 350 miles an hour, which the, the fighters couldn't get up that high. And once they got off that height, they couldn't fly that fast. Yeah. So it was an engineering marvel. And didn't they like basically say like, hey, we need something that can fly this far and do mm-hmm. these things. And they essentially built it in like two years. They did. So it really was, it was Charles Lindbergh who That's saw insane. the need for an aircraft that could do this and actually had a good talk with uh, one of our five stars, Arnold, Yeah. and threw a ton of money at it. And that's when, and, and you know, and they're coinciding the Manhattan Project. Sure, because so they, they don't know if one or the other, they're, they're, yes. they're going down both roads. So you can't like make something without a way to deliver something, right? And you can't make a way to deliver something without having something to deliver, right? Right. So these are going on kind of simultaneously. And they had other intent for the B-29, right? I mean, it was it was not just for the atomic bomb, but it was also for other bombing raids and kind of striking deeper into... Yeah, long yeah, range, long, long range, range bombing. And it really, it was really used on the Pacific Theater yep. because it really was to fly over that ocean um, because it couldn't get close up to, uh, you know, to Japan. But uh, yeah, it was Boeing that actually, your joke is so... It's so apropos because uh, it was Boeing that designed the B-29 bomber. And of course, it, like anything else with government contracting, people came with their plans and it was Boeing that had put forth the best design. And so you got this huge aircraft, like you said, with like 140 feet wingspan. 141 feet longer than the first flight Can, by the Wright yeah, Brothers. Yeah, by the Wright Brothers. So when we're standing in the hangar there it at the Pueblo Air Museum, and you see this huge wingspan of this aircraft. It is remarkable how big. And it has the two two engines on each side. And it's a prop plane. So these are propellers that are spinning. It just really is a, a, a marvel, an engineering marvel to look at it. Well, and it was neat too. And, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of where, we're, where we were visiting when we were in Pueblo. Um, but it was neat too, because once you get up close to one of these aircraft, and if you ever have the opportunity, Pueblo, Colorado, fantastic air museum, we'll talk a little bit more about it, to get up close to one of these aircraft, to see how big these things are. Now, obviously the insides were pretty crowded. They didn't have the small technology that we had today, but then seeing footage, and I show some of it in, in our video that I'll link in the show notes, seeing footage of dozens 
of these aircraft just lining up, getting ready to go down the runway. I mean, and so these mat, I mean, it really kind of helps put more of that World War II industrial effort into scale. Exactly. Seeing that. So from 1944 to 1960, that's the lifetime of the B-29. They basically made a little less than 4,000 of them. So about 3970 uh, rolled off the, um, the line. Um, and like you said, pressurized cabin, which was rare. There weren't any aircraft at the time with pressurized cabins the, the whole length of the aircraft. So that means everybody, the crew, didn't have to wear oxygen masks because above 10,000 feet, you have to wear supplemental oxygen. So this allowed you to have, you know, frame of mind and keep your wits about you. Long mission, right? 14-hour flight without a, without a mask on. And you got one gunner to control the four turrets, which is also rare. And so it really was like they were putting these things together that was really going to make this an efficient aircraft for what they needed it. But like you said, there's only two aircraft B-29s that fly today. And you might see pictures of them online. It's the Fifi and the Dock. Yeah, I show footage of the Fifi in our video. And they still fly. But then there's 22 static aircraft. And the two most famous ones... Um, I mean, of course, we're we're right in August, so we have uh, Hiroshima, the Enola Gay, who dropped the the bomb, little boy. Um, the Enola Gay was named after the, the pilot's mother, so Enola Gay is where the name comes from. And then you have Boxcar, who dropped the bomb in, in, in Nagasaki. Um, Fat Man was the name of that bomb, and Boxcar is the captain of that plane. His name last name was Box. Yeah, and little known, well, maybe that's not so little known, but I didn't know this. It's not B-O-X, yeah. it's B-O-C-K-S. Yeah, yeah. So box, like box. That's, that's the last like person's bock, last Like name. chicken bock or, or right. chicken pock, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, chicken bock. <laughs> yeah, so if you're listening and you didn't know that and you always thought it was actually B-O-X-C-A-R, no, that's that's not actually correct. Yeah, it's C-K. Um, so those, the Enola Gay Smithsonian uh, boxcar is at... The uh, Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, birthplace of aviation. And then you have the other 20 spread out across America. And we got to see one and we got a personal tour of one. Yeah. And so just to kind of tell how this opportunity for us came about. So we actually had someone reach out to us, I believe is one of our Arlington videos, mm-hmm. right? They, had, they commented and they reached out, they shot us an email. And so it was John Hill, um, who kind of did a lot of the coordinating. He's a great guy. Um, and reached out to us probably six to nine months before we ever got to come out. Yeah, because it's Colorado. It's yeah. Pueblo, Colorado. So it's uh, it's difficult for us in Virginia to make it out to Colorado, but it coincided with our road trip. Yeah, so it, co- it ended up working out, coinciding with our road trip, and we had kind of shifted, shifted some plans around. We were able to make this work. It actually lined up really well. And so this was exciting for us because it was one of the goals that I've kind of had that's on the download. I don't talk about too much for the channel is for museums like this to reach out to us and say, hey, we would like you to come and make a video at our museum mm-hmm. to help promote the museum. And eventually for that kind of to be one of our potential kind of business avenues, yeah. right? For us to help promote museums. And we've just kind of done it for free up to yes. this point. And this was kind of like the first 
sort of sponsorship. They didn't really directly pay us money or anything like that, but they did offer us, you know, us, you and I, the Walk With History, a lifetime membership. And that lifetime membership enabled us to get the, the hands-on tour of the B-29. Right. It, 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 it allowed us for the, the hands-on tour inside mm-hmm. because there's certain criteria for some of the other aircraft, and we haven't made those videos yet, and they'll be coming out soon. I mean, you got to sit in an F-15. I did. And what's the other aircraft you sat in? Was it F-16? There was two that you sat in. Yeah, I think it was an F-15 and an F-16. Both of them were uh, Air Force. Right. But part of that is that they can't just let the public sit in these things. So if you go to Pueblo, the Pueblo Air Museum, right, it's about an hour and a half to two hours south of Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually, if you buy a lifetime membership, those people there are are allowed to let these members on occasion sit inside of some of these aircraft and do what the public is not authorized yeah. to do. And so they they've they've worked on this and this it's been around for a couple of decades. It's a phenomenal yes. air museum. Very kid friendly. Very kid friendly. If you were out in the the Denver area, I highly recommend making a trip out there if you're a fan of aviation or even if you just want to take your kids to something that a whole kids area. Yeah, I didn't get to I haven't showed it in the video yes. yet. That's coming up in future videos. But it was it was just amazing. But we'll talk a little bit more about the B twenty nine. Yes, uh, yes, a very a STEM for kids. That's what I really appreciated yep. about it. The Pueblo Weisbrod Aircraft Museum, and it's a nonprofit. And Fred Weisbrod was uh, the former city manager of Pueblo, and it's two hangars. They have forty military and civilian aircraft. It's all done by volunteers, and they're they do restoration. And one of the planes they're restoring is the B twenty nine. Super Fortress. It's the Peachy. And the captain, Robert Haver, was from Pueblo, Colorado. Mr. Weisbaugh, he's the one who made sure to save that aircraft because it was going to go to be kind of like a static target for target train for, for, for pilots to practice target training. And he saved it because the pilot of that aircraft was from that city and they were able to get it back there and get it in the hangar and that's so neat it's connection to the town yeah yeah and, and it was and i believe there was like you know if you go back and watch the video i, I don't remember if everything kind of made the my my editor's cut but there was sections of it that he saved and then other sections they were able to get mm-hmm. from other other places so um you know, the, this aircraft, you know, as John Hill said, it's not a, not a combat veteran. It didn't actually fly in combat or anything Well, it like was that. shot down over Tokyo. Well, this, the one sitting in the museum. Oh, yeah. The, the original Peachy aircraft was shot down. Yes, the original Peachy aircraft was shot down over Tokyo in May of 1945. Um, it's 35th trip over Japan. Yeah, and, and I, I encourage you to go watch the video. One, it's actually doing quite well mm-hmm. um, for us. I think it's going to be a popular video. Um, but but two, it's the nose art is classic. Yes, World War II nose art. So Peachy is the younger sister of the pilot. So the pilot from Pueblo, um, Robert Haver. It's his younger sister. Her name, her nickname was Peachy, and she wears this little leather skirt and a little leather vest and a cowboy hat, and really not. Nothing else. Right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's like think Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, but even more risky. Yeah. And they painted her on the side of the aircraft, and they actually have the outfit that she wore for the for modeling it, it there as well. Um, but it's really neat uh, that that's it, it's so I always find it so neat how aircraft are named 
by the crew yeah, and something special to them, something that has meaning to them. You know, when you think of the Memphis Belle, right, that was the girlfriend of the pilot. Like, it's just something that really ties them to home and something that really makes them smile and, you know, kind of cheers them up and it's for morale. So that's why I really, I love nose art and I really loved this nose art. But um, yeah, it, it has a, a, the original serial number. So you can always look it up. It's 44 62022. Yeah, it was recovered in 1972, which is it's really neat that this uh, aircraft is is there at the Pueblo Museum. Yeah, and and just to kind of paint the picture for those listening, if you haven't seen the video yet, you know the this B twenty nine is just kind of looming inside of their first hangar. So there's mm-hmm. the first hangar that you can walk all the way through the museum. You can actually walk outside. They have a bunch of aircraft outside. Yes, um, and then they've got a, a separate hangar with some of the more modern air- aircraft. Yes. Now, where the B-29 was, they've got a bunch of World War II kind of memorabilia and historical artifacts yeah. all the way from, and again, this is in upcoming videos, but from flight jackets to you know, propaganda posters mm-hmm. to you know different kinds of communication areas. And so you can go all through and get a feel for what that era was really like, even though the public can't crawl kind of in as as much as you got to yeah. do inside of the B twenty nine. So I got to see what it's really like to be in the crew yeah, of you a You sat in the bombardier seat. Like picture picture the kind of plexiglass front nose that's that has clear. Mm-hmm. Right? If you've watched Star Wars, it's kind of that kind of hexagonal <laughs> you know, windows. It's totally an influence. And you're sitting you got to sit right up front in yeah. the nose of that aircraft. Yeah, so and I got to sit it's a basically like a, a flip seat where you kind of stand on the seat, then you flip the back up and you sit down. And right in front of you is the instrument that the vomiter is using. Uh, it looks like it's calibrated and it has all these different um, dials on there for different uh, compass settings and for you to make sure you're dialed into where you're, you're bombing, right? And so, and you can have a little eye look through space, but that little area where the bombardier is sitting and then right behind the bombardier, you got the pilot and the co-pilot. And then you have a navigator and a radar man who's all kind of sitting in that same general area. But this is this is where you are for your 14-hour flight. And really, when you when you think about it, for like to get a bomb on target, to get one thing on target, and you really have to, you're the guy. When you think about it, like the pilot flies you there, but you're the guy who has to drop it, and it has to be perfect. And you have to think of everything. You know, you have to think of trajectory and wind and... Doing all the math. All the math. So it really was a neat experience to sit there and to be there and to kind of feel what that must have felt like for th- that person. Yeah. Now, it wasn't John, who our, our initial kind of docent, who was showing mm-hmm. us around, but he kind of gave us the outside tour and told us about the pilots and the crew and Peachy and all that stuff. But it was the, a, another gentleman named Dick who brought us into inside the aircraft. Um, and you really got spent more time inside and I was wrangling kids and kind of yeah. taking shots from outside. So Dick was Dick has been the one who's been restoring the aircraft. And I asked him, what brought you to Pueblo, Colorado? And he said, the B-29. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing that he said he came there to restore that aircraft. Like that's how much people love these aircraft and there's so few of them. And so he slowly building this aircraft back to its original uh, original 
looks and uh, and original parts and he found pieces on ebay and he's been fixing them he's found pieces you guys you even spent one point and i I didn't it didn't really the the audio the conversation didn't make um the video cut but there's one at one point in time i'm showing you all these dials Mm -hmm. right where i think it's either the navigator might have sat or one of the flight engineers sure and there's all these dials with all these labels and all this stuff, and he's recreated some of the labels. Yes. Some of the labels are still original, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. But even you, when you were talking to him, you couldn't tell the difference. He's doing a phenomenal job. Yes. And one of the places that he really he spent a ton of time and that we show right in the very beginning of the video was the gunner's turret. The turret. And kind of its little sight gauge and the way it can move 360 on like a rail. He's He found that original piece and was able to clean it up and recreate it and make sure it fits and is workable in the B-29. Yeah, so picture the clear bubble on top of the aircraft, Mm -hmm. right? That's where someone's actually looking through that bubble at the enemy aircraft around them. And there was really, and he was talking about the barber's chair. Yeah, so he sits, that person sits on a chair that also swivels 360. Right. So it kind of, and they're higher up because they're sitting in that bubble. Their head is in that bubble. And then there's two gunners to the either side of him. Right, with bubbles on each side with of the bubbles on of the each craft. side. And then, of course, there's a tail gunner in the back. So you, really, I mean, this is a big crew. When you think about what's on a B-29, it's, it's, it's 10, 11 people who are in tandem making this aircraft work, flying this aircraft. So it was just amazing for to, to be there with him and for him to show me how all of it worked. And then to climb around that thing, like, it's a tunnel. And... Uh, and I said, how did people get through this tunnel? And he's like, well, they would put mattresses down and they would slide on their flight jackets. But think of like, you know, young men who were just laid down and pull themselves through this tunnel. And I'm thinking, oh my, does he expect me to? He did not expect me to do that, thank God. But like, it really is a physical demanding job. And you just don't think about how physical it is just to, for one flight, for one, you know, uh, mission to be able to to complete your mission you have to there's a lot you have to do and then you probably are on your guns for a, a significant part of your flight as well and again just to be that alert and aware it takes it takes a lot yeah and and so the, we i think we were talking there was about four gunners mm-hmm. right one on each side where the one uh probably lead gunner in the in the that bubble turret yes. the top bubble turret yep. and one in the back and one of the cool things about this aircraft we talk about how technologically advanced it was at the time. Think about this, the mid-1940s. The one, uh, they designed this aircraft, the B-29, so that this one gunner in the turret could actually control every single gun on on the aircraft mm-hmm. that, that turned. So he could essentially take control of all of them. Mm-hmm. And I then I imagine the others could take individual control at the same time. So I, I thought about that. I was like, that's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. For, for that era. I mean, they made some serious technological advances. And you mentioned on the live stream that, you know, governments in and in us in the United States specifically have never had more technology advances than we do during wartime. Yes. That's when we throw a lot of money at technology. And you can see when we increase that cost during wartime towards military advancement and technology, it's when the greatest jumps are made. And when you think about it, if there was a, a chance that you lose a gunner, you don't lose the gun. Right. Right. And that's what makes it so unique is you're not going to wound yourself on that side and not have that gun still available to you, even if you might lose the person. And that's what you have to think about with, 
you know, technology and defense. And uh, it's just, it's just amazing. That aircraft is, is really something to see. Yeah. And one of the neat things that I found on YouTube, and I, I kind of downloaded the video and kind of interjected it throughout our video was an old training mm-hmm. video. I mean, I, I call it a training video. Really, it was more like a kind of a propaganda war video. Sure. Um, kind of more for the public than anything else. But even in the 40s, it had like animations and would talk about this is where the crew sits. Mm-hmm. And it would animate, here's how the guns would turn and here's what the pilots do. And it's that kind of old timey like, and the pilot's like brave and important and this, that, and the other. You know, it's like, it's classic 40s. That. It's yeah. classic <laughs> 40s kind of war propaganda video. But it was it was very well done. And honestly, no other nation has an aircraft like this. I mean, even Britain wants to use it. But really, America is the one who's designed it, made it, and put it into um, operation no one has touched anything like this when it comes to flight uh, technology. And that's why the B-29 was so unique. Yeah. And really, like, they couldn't stop it. Like, even dropping the bombs, like, they couldn't, no one could get up there to stop it from happening. And um, another thing that I find really unique is the A. We talk about what makes a B-29A. And Dick kind of mentions that, it, it really was each place is making different parts of this aircraft. Like yeah, Each manufacturer. Each manufacturer is not rolling off one B-29. One place is making the front, one place is making the middle, one place is making the tail, and then they're kind of putting it all together. So in different areas, they're doing something a little bit different. And that's what makes things, the design is just a little bit different in some places. And that's what makes it gives it the A. Yeah. And I think we said on the video that the B-29A had like an improved wing design. Mm-hmm and some improved kind of uh, defense yes. systems. Yes. Um, so again, they're constantly iterating and, and making those things better mm-hmm. because you have the best and brightest all focusing their efforts on things like the atomic bomb as well as um, things like the B-29. The B-29. And honestly, when you think of the B-29, I want people to think a lot of the Manhattan Project because they're rolling off. I think the first B-29 rolled off in 1942 from Seattle. And then the second one is in 1943. Uh, and sometimes they would roll off test flight and, and there was a, a mishap where the whole crew died. But most of the time, someone would test flight it and fly it right back into the hangar and they would fix all the things they were saying from that flight. Wow. So these test pilots who are learning this B-29, they're learning on the go. It is like we're... This is this is the the feeling of urgency of wartime is like we're making this we're testing it we're fixing it we're testing it we're fixing it and so those by the end of 1943 they only had 15 that were airworthy and even though they had made like a couple hundred only 15 were really like safe to fly so when you think about how much they had to kind of overcome and learn and get better to get this aircraft in the air it, it really did take a lot of time and money and people to do this yeah and and the other kind of video i found that was kind of i cut inside of our video was another kind of mini documentary i found on youtube that talked about the B-29, and more specifically kind of the operations and lead up to the first atomic bomb drop, right? So they, it, it talked about how the Japanese at the time, they, we were fighting them back, but they had basically said, we're going to fight to the last 
last man, last soldier, mm-hmm. last woman, and all this stuff. And it kind of all the lead up that a lot of us have learned about, especially here in America, um, leading up to that kind of historic day. And unbeknownst to us, really unplanned for us when we did our live stream on Sunday, that mm-hmm. was the 78th anniversary it was. of Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of neat to be able to talk about that in Oppenheimer and kind of just remember that, you know, talk about it and, you know, talk about what we had learned yeah. Right. And obviously we focused on the movie. It was kind of a, an Oppenheimer review. And so if you enjoyed that movie, if you've seen it or if you're curious, you can go to our channel and check out that live stream. We had a, a friend of ours on mm-hmm. the, the history chick, Sarah. Um, but talking about that and how significant the B-29 was, and it really was that aircraft really was kind of part of the golden age yeah. of aviation in you know in the 40s you know in the world war ii advancements exactly and like you had said japan had really they were faltering but they had made a stance that they weren't going to surrender until the last person was was dead like they basically had said we're going to fight until the end and i don't want people to think we weren't feeling that on the other side getting these aircraft and that um that atomic bomb ready took men and women and their families and sacrifice to get these things ready to do what it did we were trying to meet the enemy where they stood and that's really i mean it was and when you think of the 1940s and that's why i always say it's the greatest generation everybody was all in the country was all in people making these aircraft coming off the assembly line were women Right, Rosie the Riveters were doing this. Men were doing this. Kids were helping out at home, and it was the country all together who was making this happen. So, it really was like if if Japan was digging in their heels, America was meeting them where they were at. Yeah, and, and so that's why again it was, it's it's difficult to describe on a podcast mm-hmm. what it was like to kind of climb in that classic, just silver shiny aircraft, 141 feet wide. You know, I don't remember how long how long the aircraft is, but climbing inside that, I mean, you just you can feel the history there, and mm-hmm. and everybody's been commenting on the video saying, you know, Jen, we can tell how excited you were and how yeah. passionate you were to be there. So it really was an experience. I encourage you to to check out the show notes and watch the video on on our YouTube channel. Um, I think you would really enjoy it if you enjoy this podcast. So the the B twenty nine Super Fortress soared through the skies during the golden years of aviation, leaving an indelible mark on World War II. With its pressurized cabins, remote-controlled gun turrets, and four-engine prowess, the B-29 epitomized the pinnacle of mid-20th century aviation engineering. Its illustrious legacy was etched into history over the vast expanse of the Pacific theater where it undertook daring missions, raids, and of course, the historic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Beyond its military triumphs, the B-29 Superfortress ignited an enduring fascination with the soaring possibilities of flight, forever linking it to aviation's golden age and the stories and legends of the greatest generation. Thank you for listening to Talk With History Podcast, and please reach out to us at our website, talkwithhistory.com. But more importantly, please share this. If you have aviation fans in in your friend's circle, shoot them a text to link to this podcast or our video on YouTube. Because we rely on you, our community, to grow. And we appreciate you all every day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.